Good dirt grows good food. Good dirt grows good fiber. Good dirt grows good humans. The Earth's health is our health. It's a direct reflection. Welcome to the Good Dirt Podcast, where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. We are your hosts, Emma and Mary Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer, a slow living apparel and lifestyle brand. Before we get started, let's just check in to see what's up. How have you practiced slow living this week, Emma? Well, I must say, I have been in the car more often than I like to be this week in particular. And I actually had just read a newsletter from someone who I love to follow. Her name's Jess Davis. She runs the Folk Rebellion. Everyone should subscribe to her newsletter. It's great. And she just mentioned uh, she's kind of all about unplugging from tech and just kind of turning off noise. Um, and for some reason in this past newsletter, she had a prompt, um, kind of a challenge to just not freak out when you're in the car and there's traffic or like maybe intentionally go a couple of miles under the speed limit just to kind of like see what happens, you know, just like really physical ways of like slowing down, like when you're in the car. And, um, yeah, I kind of used that a couple of times when I was frustrated by, you know, whether it was a slowdown because of construction or, you know, maybe I wasn't getting somewhere fast enough. But when I stopped to think about it for a minute, it's like I wasn't actually really like late to anything. Um, Just being in the car for me is such a good practice and like realizing that I don't actually need to rush anywhere. (laughs) So I think once you realize that uh, uh, you're not wasting time, you're actually, uh, you know, doing something constructive, getting somewhere and you're not, you're not wasting time. That's part of the anxiety of it. Oh, I'm wasting time. And you're not, you just, it actually can be kind of relaxing if you just get your head in the right place. Yeah. So what about you, mom? How have you practiced slow living this week? Well, um, I had set sort of a new year's resolution that I was going to read more for fun. And, um, I had also watched earlier in January, I'd kind of binge watched on Anne with an E, which I absolutely loved that series. It was so beautiful. And so now I'm reading the um, the series, the books, and I, I just started with the first one, Anne of Avonlea. I'm almost finished with it, and it's just so delightful. <laughs> I remember those books from when I was little. I should reread them too. Oh, they're so wonderful. So I feel like that's that's filling me up. And giving me some just really wonderful slowly in time. Um, and then have you been listening to anything like podcasts or good music lately? Oh, I, I heard a good podcast recently. I listened to Gabby Bernstein on the Luke Story podcast. I really enjoyed that. Oh, yeah, mom loves Luke Story podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I need to listen to that one. I love Gabby Bernstein too. Yeah. She's great. So as far as announcements... Uh, new things, new exciting things coming up this week and in the near future. Um, First, we have the launch of our podcast, which you have already found if you're listening to this. We're so excited about it. 
And if you missed in the past couple of weeks, we did launch a new clothing line from our friends at Line and Toe. It's a, an awesome sustainable fashion company based in Roanoke. And we've partnered and you can now exclusively buy all of her clothing through us. Just go to our website, our shop page, and peruse the gorgeous designs. Grace Bryant, she's a genius designer. Um... So those are the two things. And then we have this awesome slow living challenge coming up. Speaking of slow living, mom, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, a year ago, we had a seven day slow living challenge. And in that one, everyone that signed up got an email every day giving you a prompt to some sort of exercise or activity. This year we've shifted it. It's going to be five weeks. And so you get a prompt Every week, every Sunday, Sunday I think it yeah. is. And um, the you will have a theme for the week and some suggestions on exercises and activities for the week. And you can pick and choose what you want to do or how far you go into it. It's just a fun thing. Um, and you'll be invited to join our Facebook Slow Living Challenge page where you can talk about your observations and experiences with others. And um, it's a really fun community thing. And it's all leading up to um, the print version of our Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living, which is going to be released in March. So, yes. Yeah. So so many fun things coming up. Yes. We have a lot going on here. So stay tuned, especially for that Slow Living Challenge. Um, come join us. How did they get to it? Oh, well, there will be... We'll have all the links for you easily on Instagram. We'll link it in the show notes in this episode. And um, if you're just like visiting our website, it should be obvious. You'll need to enter your email to make sure that you're getting the email prompts if you want to like participate that way. Um, We're also, you can also be following along with the blog. You like don't have to like get the emails, obviously. Um, But we'll have a blog going too. So just kind of hang around our Instagram page and our newsletter if you get it, and you will have all the info that you need. So with that, we will introduce today's episode. I'm so excited about it. Uh, Mom, do you want to go? Sure. Today's guest is Amy Default. Amy's a sustainable fashion writer, and she's been writing for the past 13 years, for media, including Ecouterre, Participant Media, and The Guardian. Currently, she's the Sustainability and Communications Director for Natural Dye Guru, Kathy Hattori of Botanical Colors. Shout out at Botanical Colors on Instagram. She's great. Follow her. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I just... I just where we some, get our dye. Yeah, and I just did some wonderful um, uh, Valentine socks, in case anyone's interested, with Botanical Colors. And um, Amy consults on communications and sustainable strategies, and she plans events for sustainability-minded folks like Elizabeth Klein, who you might know is the author of Overdressed and The Sustainable Closet, for Buffy Bedding, which is an earth-friendly bedding company, and TS Designs, which is a screen print company dedicated to sustainability. In addition to being the former editor of EcoSalon and co-owner of a boutique, she's repped for dozens of sustainable fashion designers. Today, you can find her co-running the Southeastern New England Fiber Shed, helping to keep carbon in the ground, 
creating a meaningful dialogue with farmers about climate change, and creating a regional supply chain that supports Massachusetts and Rhode Island textile businesses. We first became aware of Amy as an important voice in the world of slow fashion and as a no-nonsense advocate for change in an industry that is destructive and broken. When we learned about Amy's involvement with the Food and Fibers Project, which is an initiative aimed at making a connection between what we eat and what we wear, we knew we had found a kindred spirit, and we wanted to get to know her better. She kindly agreed to come onto a webinar we hosted in 2017, and we had such a great discussion with her and Anna Bronis, one of her food and fiber cohorts. Then, in early 2018, we asked her if she would be the keynote speaker at our first Lady Farmer Slow Living Retreat. With her years of experience in the fashion sector and her passion for changing the status quo, Amy was literally the perfect fit for taking the participants of this inaugural event to the very heart of the slow fashion movement. So since that auspicious gathering over a year ago, Amy has taken her voice and passion from the runways of New York to a deeper place, the place she feels is where the true healing of not only our clothing systems, but our food, our communities, and even the brokenness of our human connections. Amy is broadening the scope of her work by becoming an activist and spokesperson for the source of it all, the soil. With her literally feet-on-the-ground approach, seeking out the best guides, teachers, farmers, and producers, talking and working with them, taking on projects, learning, and educating every step of the way. We feel such a strong kinship with Amy in that migration towards the soil as a focus for our content. And so, of course, as soon as we could, we asked her to come be with us on The Good Dirt. We cover a number of topics today as Amy shares her current work with the Southeastern New England Affiliate of Fibershed, the national nonprofit based in Northern California. Amy answers the question, what a fiber shed is, and describes how it relates to sustainability in both food and fiber systems and addresses climate change. She touches on several key concepts in the world of soil science, no-till versus traditional farming, the relevance of weeds, carbon sequestration, and the vital issue of nutrient density in our foods. Along the way, the discussion touches on the many ways that care of the soil and slow living overlap. The concept of patience, of waiting, of working with nature instead of trying to control it, and of taking the opportunity to witness and heal our addictive behaviors as we do so. Whether we're farmers or not, every consumer decision we make somehow relates back to the soil, and we all have our part to play in regenerating a healthy world. Join us in this relevant and wonderful conversation with Amy as we explore this common ground we all share, the good dirt, coming up right now. Let's just get right into it. We want to know who you are and how did you get here and how did you get on our podcast? <laughs> well, I came into this, onto this earth by my mother, Ellie <laughs> Default, and, you know, it was a dark and cloudy night. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I have been, I, I've been in working in the sustainable fashion industry for the past I guess about 13 years, mostly as a journalist. And now I have evolved from kind of being in New York City and in runways and fashion week and 
way too many panels and conferences to being back home here on Cape Cod and really getting closer to the earth in terms of looking at soil and farming and the very basis from where our fibers are actually coming from. So whether it's a sheep or alpaca or hemp or natural dye plants. So kind of started in one place and now I'm all the way back to this place. Oh, wow. What a perfect tie-in to the Good Dirt podcast. And we as a company, Lady Farmer, we're moving in the same direction as well, which is why we had you on. And can you talk a little bit more about um, just kind of overall before we dive into fiber sheds and more soil stuff? Can you talk about the difference for you and the experience of the like sustainable fashion journalist kind of like you just referenced kind of the New York City going to shows, sitting on panels? versus this kind of offshoot that you're taking now um, besides just, yeah. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. I think the kind of it's, it's becoming this, I almost start, I'm starting to feel like I sound so hippy trippy when I talk about this stuff, but uh, you know, when there's, you know, before it was this real outsider looking in and wondering how I could be writing or how I could be talking or be involved in talking about supply chains and where things come from, if I wasn't a, if I wasn't actually going to the places, if I was just yet another voice on a panel or talking to a crowd, saying the same thing to the same crowd, and we're not really moving forward as as fast as we should. And and I I get it. It's slow fashion. I get it. But you know, to be doing this for thirteen years and to just starting to just start see people starting to see people actually becoming more involved in the way that we should be like really understanding where things come from and the impacts started um, creeping into my brain I guess about about eight years ago and when I, I started working with natural dye with botanical colors natural dyes and thinking about dye plants but now with the job that I have or the jobs that I do have. And the interests that I do have, now I'm actually with the farmers. Now I'm actually with the soil at the very base of everything that we're doing. You know, you cannot have clothing without some type of a fiber. So I'm there. And what's exciting for me is I am so wet behind the ears on what the hell everybody's talking about. And so I'm really trying to absorb it. It's an education. It's... um you know, it's bringing my, my past, you know, whatever, 13 years of marketing and communications and storytelling now to farmers who don't have the time to do that at all. And, and, you know, it could be even a mill in Fall River or um, an environmental group on Cape Cod. Like These people just do not have time just to do the storytelling. So now I'm finding myself as a storyteller, really helping all of these people navigate where they should go and what they should talk about and what their strengths are and what they should just leave behind and never talk about again. And you make such a good point about, um, you say you feel like a newcomer wet behind the ears, but the truth of it is, um, these things we're talking about have where, where it was like common knowledge and the way things were done, maybe a generation or two ago, it sort of, it dropped away. It dropped away with 
all the industrialization of clothing production and manufacturing and it's just now being resurfaced and so in a way we're all kind of we're relearning as we go and we're sort of unlearning the ways of the last half century at least and so we're all kind of in it together and um, just taking one step at a time and even the farmers are having to relearn taking care of the soil and and what all that entails and extracting themselves from from the industrial ways that they've been so encouraged to participate in so here we all are together um and i'll ask a clarifying question too to something my mom just said um I think overall, the um, local production and manufacturing has and did drop away. But I think what's interesting about where you are in particular in New England, is it true that some of the people that you're working with have kind of, you know, never like went all the way away and it's maybe less of a physical going away in in your area and more of a um, like intellectual, like people just haven't appreciated it or understood it for a while is that would that be true to say or is it actually like a real resurgence and reshoring of well, that labor i think you know as we we've all been going along we see that um we're, we've all been moving too fast through everything and instead of thinking long term about our decisions we've been thinking short term so that short term thinking has gotten us all into a whole heap of trouble in terms of everything we do from food to farming to, you know, fashion. Uh, I mean, we've, so we've gotten ourselves not only into this short-term thinking, but it's almost, the more I think about it, it's this, this um, addictive behavior for everything we do. One of my favorite things is when I teach indigo dyeing to some friends and they'll, and I say, now you have to keep it in there under the water, under the indigo for five minutes. And they'll, they keep looking up saying, is, you think it's done? You think it's done? <laughs> and for me, it's, it's a total meditation when I'm, when I am dying with indigo and I'm quiet and I'm very peaceful. So, and I've been able to slow my, my brain down, but even the, the, even friends who are in the slow fashion world, I can't, they can't slow it down. They think the color should be there immediately. So, and, and I think that's gone the same way for farmers too, because they've been taught we have to put these chemicals on our plants and the plants will grow faster and the weeds will disappear anything to just make this go faster because people are eating more. And then we think the same way about in other parts of the world, a lot of, you know, where a lot of our fibers coming from, we have to, you know, push our animals harder. We have to push the earth faster to grow and, you know, to grow the different fiber plants. So it's not that we don't know how to do it. It's that we have to slow our brains down now to understand that, that good things take time. So okay, take a deep breath, you know, (laughs) let's like, like think about that. All this stuff's going to take time. You know, when I'm talking to farmers now and they say, you know, they look at me and they're really sarcastic. You know, I I love, I love talking with them about this and and being plain devil's advocate, but they'll say, we know how to do this stuff. We've been doing it for so long. And like, well, you're not doing a very good job at it. Like, why aren't you doing it? Why aren't you really doing it? You know how to do it. Why aren't you doing it? because we need to make money now. Well, if you if you don't take care of of your farms, your acreage, your pastures now and for the future and you won't have anything in the future, what are you actually working towards then? 
working towards nothing. So you have to sort of, you know, I'm trying to really engage people to be quiet, roll it out five years, roll it out 10 years, really think about it. And and also be honest, where do you want to be? You know, what's your level of success? And, um, and that seems to really be, you know, the people, different people that I'm working with either consulting or through Fibershed or, uh, accounts or clients, whatever. I don't know. I hate this. I hate the word, whatever. Really great people I work with through botanical colors, you know, it's getting them to think through their projects and think through why they're doing what they're doing. And, and again, and not to make this such a long winded answer here, sorry. Um, it's really getting people to ask themselves why, like, why am I doing this? Okay. Then you get your answer. So why do I want to do that? Keep at And I tell people, keep asking yourself why until you can't, until you can't ask why anymore. And then you'll be at the answer that you want to be at. That's so wonderful what you were saying about patience and waiting. Um, Permaculture has to do with the weeds. And what I've been learning is that the weeds that appear in your garden or your acre or whatever piece of land that you're tending come for a reason. They actually appear to correct something in the soil. And um, our modern day reaction to a weed is, oh my God, rip it out, spray it, poison it, do whatever you can to get rid of it immediately so I can grow my whatever. And, um, but the reality is, if you let the weed be there, it might be there for a season or two, but it will actually correct and heal the soil of whatever was missing it actually is putting something back into the soil and a lot of those things that show up not all of them and don't go out and start munching around in your yard but a lot of the things that um that appear in that way in great proliferation are very nutrient dense edible things that would sustain us in a time of food scarcity so it's all so so fascinating and and you're so right that you just sit back and watch and be willing to be patient and we're talking you know maybe several seasons several years um it's amazing what the earth will do for us if we're willing to work with her you know mary one of the is funny you just said that too i was just at an organic farming conference this past weekend and we were talking about weeds and farming and the, the class was actually on no-till farming and it was really interesting, but you know, it's another one of those opportunities to ask why, like, Hey, little weed, why are you here? Why are you thriving? And you know, it could be because, Hey, dummy, it's an invasive species. It just likes to, <laughs> likes to do what it does, but you know, is there something you're not giving the soil and it's telling you something or, you know, have you not built the soil up enough so that the plants don't need, you know, that these weeds aren't shooting up all around it? Like, what are the different ways that you can handle listening to what the soil is telling you when the when these plants are shooting up? And then, you know, without poisons to put on them, like, what are the different ways you can actually utilize them or take them out? Like you're saying, like dandelions, you know, eat them. You know, there's, there's, um, kind of different ways that we should really be listening to what the, what our soil is telling us in terms of uh, the why of why they're there. Can you explain briefly for anyone who might not know what no-till farming is? 
Well, again, because I am uh, a, an absolute amateur at all of this, so I'm not going to say I'm any expert, so check your facts. No-till farming is... Um, Okay, so we'll we'll just focus on like your garden. You're you're creating a garden in your yard um, for food. You wanna you've you want to not pull the soil up and flip it over so that it's all exposed because all the life that's underneath it has been growing and doing its thing, and there's all kinds of you know all kinds of nutrient, all kinds of little organisms that are working together to hold your soil together. So. When you're, when you're doing no-till, if you've been doing things right in your little garden, say in your yard, or you can expand on that, your acres and acres if you're a larger farmer, what, you're, you, what you've been doing is preparing the soil to grow your plants. So you've been just adding layers of different nutrients and composts and old crops, new crops. You're building these layers on top so that you can actually, you don't have to pull the soil back to enrich it you just are piling it on top to keep enriching it and you know the farmer that who is really great and I you should totally check him out it's a tobacco road farm they he was saying you know there's some circumstances where if it's a whole new piece of property that is something that he has to do where he has to pull it all back but he tries to get new soil on top and protect it within 24 hours it's not something you want to just let sit and like, you know, pull back. You're basically pulling back the shade on something and just freaking it out. So you just don't want to be, you know, doing that, but no-till farming, it could also be, you know, I'm learning more about the tools that you're using. Like, so how do you get the plants in then? Um, it's a whole process, but no-till is just not ripping the ground apart. Essentially. It's just not ripping it apart, exposing it to the elements and instead working with with it in a different way sounds like a recipe for some good dirt (laughs) yeah Yeah, and the 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 way of the plow which which is really the legacy of like american settlement and growth across the the country across the west um they would plow and it's a vicious cycle because in, in plowing and, and, um, surfacing the soil, the layers of soil, as you said, you are actually giving, um, oxygen and light to, to all kinds of weeds. So then that necessitates treating the weeds that are coming up and competing with your, whatever it is you want to grow. So it, so over the years, it just, it has created not only working to deplete the soil, but more and more of a cycle of a need to do something about the weeds. So why does all this matter? And specifically, what does it have to do with your work with fiber shed? And while we're at it, maybe explain what fiber shed is, if you can. Yep. Well, fiber shed was founded by the amazing Rebecca Burgess in California, Northern California, and she wanted to see if she could create, um, I think it was a pair of jeans. Now, you know, I talk about Rebecca so much in fiber shed, but I, I always, I think it was a pair of jeans. She was trying to see if she could grow within kind of a 150 mile radius, which she was able to do. And then was able to take that 
to the North Face and actually create this kind of famous backyard hoodie that a lot of people will talk about that was made a 150 mile radius around uh, North Face headquarters. But Rebecca is just a really an engaging speaker in that she's she's kind of like this wise sage that everyone loves to listen to and 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 has been able to to pull fiber artists and farmers together which is beautiful what she's been able to do and then take that and kind of make it a little bit more sophisticated so the industry fashion industry textile industry can can be more be more educated and invested in it so what she started doing was inspiring others all over the country to want to start their own fiber sheds so there's I think there's about 40 fiber sheds all over the U.S. and there's fiber sheds in other parts of the country. I co-founded the Southeastern New England Fiber Shed with Karen Schwalbe, who's the executive director of CMAP, uh, Southeastern Massachusetts Agricultural Partnership, and then uh, Sarah Kelly, who is just Wonder Woman, who does a lot with environmental grants and research and has written wonderful white white papers and is part of a regenerative farming kind of a roadmap survey or study that she's doing right now. So we decided to start this because we have such a high concentration of, of production and being sort of the birthplace of the industrial revolution, our area in terms of textiles in Fall River, New Bedford, Lowell, Lawrence. I was just at Slater Mill in Pawtucket where the cotton ginning was and milling and everything was happening. They, it's actually known as the the birthplace of the industrial revolution for, in terms of cotton. Um, so we just saw that there was a lot going on in terms of production and manufacturing here has always been. And then with CMAP working with farmers who have been, who have, you know, been growing, who've been farming for food. They also have a lot of fiber producing animals. So they wanted to have a fiber arm, to CMAP. So like that's where we ended up thinking this fiber shed would be great because we can really unite Karen and Sarah's knowledge of farming and New England with my knowledge of the fashion industry and kind of supply chain. So we have all these great ideas. <laughs> There's a million things we could we could do with our fiber shed, but Right now, what I've been trying to do consistently is we have a producer directory. So I just keep adding on farmers, uh, producers in terms of, you know, they're doing weaving, knitting, crocheting. They are doing production with cut and sew. You know, there's from farmer to finished product, it's on our website right now. Now, well, as we're going into these mills and talking with people and talking with farmers, we're you know, I've been doing a lot of talking, listening, more listening than talking. Why is it that they, you know, these mills that have been around since World War One and before, you know, like why are they able not able to thrive? Why are they making things like paint rollers and only able to work with the government now and not able to work with with brands or, you know, kind of local companies? Like why is that? And it's because things are too big and it costs too much money to do things too small. So then, all right, how do we create a small regional supply chain for somebody who's just coming into this, maybe an independent designer 
somebody who wants to do a small run of sweaters or, you know, whatever it is, how do we do a midsize supply chain? And then how do we cater to a large supply chain? And oh yeah, <laughs> we don't want to do anything. We don't want to scale anything like we have now because that's too much. So where is the cap on all of this? That's kind of becomes the overlying question. Like, And why the hell are we even doing this side note? Why does it matter? So when you start answering all those questions, it becomes there's a million answers to it. And those are the different things I've been really trying to work hard on in terms of stories on our blog. Again, kind of just going to talk and listen to people and like, what do they want to do? And their dream of dreams, what, what do they wish their business could do? Or a designer, if you could make things just in Massachusetts, what, what would that look like? And how many pieces of clothing would that be? And, and really help facilitate the, the connections. And uh, so that's one thing we've been working on. And then we got a grant from Patagonia and we've been for regenerative farming and they, and what Patagonia would really like to know is of all the fiber producing farms or yet yeah, farms in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, how many acres do they have? And of those acres, what would be the possible amount of carbon we could sequester with that amount of acreage? And then, then having that amount be able to then go back to the farmers and say, Hey, what do you think about working with us to sequester carbon on your farms? So that's stage two of it. But right now, I mean, so we have a survey that's out and we have about 45 farmers that have answered. I have 20 more farmers to reach out to right now. And I've been going to fiber events and talking with people and handing out brochures. And I've got a couple different events. I'll be, I'll be at talking with people too and hoping we get a couple more farmers before we really start reporting back to Patagonia about what that acreage is in our area. So um, those are two really big things. We've done things like we've had a wool pool where we've gotten farmers to bring their wool that they're just throwing away or composting and working with local scouring and processing to, to give farmers some reason to not throw it away. I'm not quite sure we have that answer for them yet, but working on, working on it. And then, um, yeah, again, it's just kind of, creating events where we can help people gather together, create a sense of community and really get them more engaged in fiber producing in this area. I have so many things I want to say. I know. I want, but I want, I'd like, if I could ask you to back up and um, talk just a minute about the concept of a fiber shed and also the, the national nonprofit. You talked about Rebecca but people, I mean, people have no idea, you know, about that. So if you could just kind of go over that. What is a fiber shed and how does it apply to this, the, the national nonprofit and how Southeastern New England is a, an offshoot of that program? So fiber shed is really looking at soil science. That's the kind of basis of what fiber shed does. So fiber shed in North, Northern California, I almost said North Carolina, yeah. uh, Northern California, has created these kind of this kind of model that you can use as your base. And then as a fiber shed, which is a region could be at the state of Tennessee, the state of Kentucky, the, it could be in, in our state, we have Western mass fiber shed, and then we have our Southeastern new England and everybody that starts a fiber shed. What you do is you go kind of apply to be a fiber shed and you 
come to them with a mission of what you'd like to do with your particular fiber shed. So it could be, I want to really do some R&D on hemp farming. I want to understand how I could scale indigo. I want to grow flax and linen. Um, you know, everybody based on their area has a strength. What I love about fiber shed and the community is it's mostly women that are running all these fiber sheds and they're, you know, it's mostly passion projects too. Everybody's just really excited about doing something and then being part of this larger big picture idea of connecting the dots. So if you imagine this map of the United States and all these dots all over the country that are women who are trying to do something good, it's, it's not just good in that it's building, you know, it's looking at fiber production or supply chains. It's developing communities and these women in, in all these different places, it could be a natural dye event. It could be, you know, a farming event, a harvesting event. It could be just a round table. There's just these exciting, passionate people who are getting conversations started and continuing to ripple out. So, I mean, I don't know how best every fiber sheds different, but it's just this collective of amazing human beings who are doing good for people and planet in their region. That, that all sounds so awesome. And, um, I think I'm going to go back to a question that you asked earlier, which was why does it matter though? Why is it, why do people, why are people so passionate about it? What do you think, um, why do you think it's such a strong kind of current? And um, I think it has something to do with carbon sequestration. If you could explain a little bit about that too, for anyone who might not understand that concept either, because um, this is where I get so excited about how it all works together. But I want to hear you in your words. I feel like there's two completely different answers that I have for um, carbon sequestration and then why we start fiber sheds. So I guess. I'll keep on with fiber sheds. So my take on it, why, why we're starting fiber sheds is um, I think the world's in absolute complete chaos and we're trying to find some meaning in it all. Fiber sheds really help ground us and yeah, it grounds us all the way down to the soil and working with our communities. It helps it's helping to connect the dots and give meaning, I think, to a lot of communities and some sense of, even though nature can't be controlled, some sense of control over the state of the world. And though we don't all talk about it, we all totally geek out when we, when we all get on the phone or on like um, Skype calls that um, Fibershed will put together. We're so excited to talk to each other and bond. When it comes to carbon sequestration, I mean, there's definitely fiber sheds that are working on that, but not everybody. That's not the focus of everyone's fiber sheds at all. When our particular fiber shed, that is something that we are working on. And we before this uh, grant with Patagonia, we had a fiber shed grant, which fiber shed, you know, will open up to, to only to fiber sheds. Um, I think it's like once, yeah, once a year and you apply for it and you hopefully get it. And so we got it when we applied for it and it was to put together an alpaca farming cohort. 
So we had six alpaca farmers in Massachusetts, and they all were interested in making better pastures for their alpaca. So they all had, you know, some have a couple acres, some have, you know, some have more acreage than others. And the idea was to first get some soil analysis. So Karen and I went out and we we created grids. We partnered with the Woods Hole Research Center and we got some tools from them to do soil testing. And then we were able to get the soil tested to see what the farmers needed, what they needed, you know, what they needed to add on or amendments. So, you know, from that, we, we met for about six months at the New England Alpaca Fiber Pool with Chris Riley, and, and that's his company. And we met, it's like in an old kind of old mill in Fall River, and we the farmers would come in and we would have these conversations about what their pastures were like, how they wanted to improve them. And we brought in people from the USDA to talk about grants, Massachusetts Department of Agricultural Resources, MDAR, to talk about grants. We had a person who was there with us for each meeting talking about, you know, what once the soil analysis came in, what they would need to do to make their soil better. And then I guess to back up though, big time to the beginning of this, when we first started talking about um, carbon sequestration <laughs> to the alpaca farmers, they were just looking at us like we were insane. And we realized that after we, we stopped talking about regenerative farming, global warming, climate change, sequestration, all these, you know, blah, 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 all these crazy terms, which they were completely shutting down to. If we, if we talked about, do you want good soil for your pasture, for your alpaca to grow grass? Yes. Okay, great. We want you to do that too. Oh, and as a side note, you'll be keeping carbon in the ground, which is what we want you to real like, we really want you to do that. So, so we um, ended up discovering what the language would be to speak to each other about what we, about, about the project. And once we had that language in place, then we could move forward a lot more quickly. And then as the farmers became more invested and I would send articles to them or, you know, they follow on Instagram or Facebook, they started reading the articles that I was posting they started understanding it on their own without anybody telling them how to understand it. And we've had people give talks on, on carbon sequestration and regenerative farming. We have actually tomorrow, uh, Keith Tetro who, of Plainview Alpacas will be um, giving a talk about uh, how to build kind of build your, you know, and there's a bunch of people talking about local economy and how to build your business. But Keith, who's part of our alpaca cohort, will be there talking about how he's built up his business and his work also with us as part of the carbon farming cohort. But it's been interesting to see, as with anything, you don't shove anything down people's throats, you know, you like, you have to let, you have to put the information out there and then let people go through it and digest it in the way they want to. And then they can speak then from the place that feels most comfortable. And then you have to embrace them with the way that they're speaking. And I understand it, again, coming from the fashion industry into farming, I ask them to have patience with me as well, because they could, they laugh their heads off at me about how I talk, but at the same time, they come into my world and I could laugh my head off at them. 
it's the same in anything. We all have to be really patient with each other and just listen and learn and realize we're all at different levels as we're speaking and nurture where we can and when we can. And again, with the Fibershed program, that I feel like all the people who are involved really give that opportunity to nurture and, you know, and people are ready to be nurtured and to learn. Yeah. And it sounds like the common ground here with kind of on all different sides, whatever angle you're coming um, from to it, it's the common ground is the good dirt. Yeah. (laughs) It's exactly what it is. It's pretty simple. It's just good dirt. And then guess what? Good dirt grows good food. Good dirt grows good fiber. Good dirt grows good humans because we are, whatever we're doing to the soil in this this uh, conference that I went to this past Saturday was kind of, you know, looking and thinking about that, that the earth's health is our health. It's a direct reflection. The earth's health is a direct reflection about how our health is. And when we see more pharmaceutical companies promoting more drugs, it's like Monsanto or Bayer um, promoting more drugs to, you know, more pesticides to farmers to take care of their problems there's this underlying problem in all of our health and it's the speed by which we live and we have to slow so far down and really start asking ourselves, what am I eating? What am I wearing? Why isn't my local community thriving? Why is it hard? Why is it so damn hard to be on this planet? You know, it's like ridiculous, but these are the basic questions that we need to start asking ourselves. That was awesome. You just described Lady Farmer. That's so <laughs> cool. You can't see it, but you know the praise hands emoji? That's me and my mom right now. We're just, we were going, we're like woo, woo, woo. <laughs> like, praise hands for Amy. Yeah. And um, <laughs> adding to that, what you were saying about the soil health, making good food, good clothes, good tools for everyday living, and good humans the science of how the soil microbiology is connected to our human microbiology is so very, very new. They are learning so much every day. And it's only been in the last five or so years that they've actually been able to distinguish the human DNA from the microorganisms that are within our gut. And once they did that, this has been an absolute explosion of this field. And so before that time, we were all just this whole business about the agricultural industry using antibiotics in the food supply to keep the, the supply healthier um, or to, to keep it cleaner, to keep it free of pathogens. What that's actually been doing is undermining the very, very fundamentals of our health, which is to grow healthy microbiology. So this is this is such a new thing. It's 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 so exciting because now we, we as individuals we have this knowledge. We can move forward with that in choosing everything in our lives. And if you're dealing with something or consuming something or wearing something that has harmed the soil you know that you are that behavior that that choice is is harming you mm-hmm. and in future generations i i um on the way to the conference i i had to get up at like oh my god 
five in the morning and I met this, this guy who's working with soil and composting and doing verma composting. I'd never met him in real life, but suddenly I'm in a JCPenney, dark JCPenney parking lot in an outlet mall, jumping in his white pickup truck to go to the conference. And, you know, we're drinking our coffee and this is the exact conversation that we're having. Cause he's talking to me about soil health and, and yeah, like what it is that we're eating and how much an apple, how much, you know, a nutrients an apple had in 1970 versus 2020 and how many apples we would have to eat to get the same amount. And so how he's working, John Duke is his name, how he's working locally to help people restore soil health. But other conversations I've had, like with Lisa Dackinger, in, who's in Western Mass, about and she has Lisa Dackinger wools. She was talking about how, you know, a lot of the farmers that came to our our wool pool, they would have had better fiber that she could have helped them make more money off of had they been fed better, and their fiber would have been better, and they would have gotten more money for it. So if you think about that, like the feed that a sheep has, so you're sequestering carbon and you're doing all this good thing for the, you know, all this good stuff for the pasture, sheep's eating this grass. That's amazing. They're getting better, um, you know, better wool. And then the wool that's being processed then goes on our bodies. And hopefully again, you know, it's something that's good for us. And then you start just thinking about everything. The more conversations I have, it's just this real holistic process again it's about the how the soil is the is the basis for everything it is like the most important thing we have to focus on it should have been the most important damn thing we focused on since time began but we were we just thought it was something that we could use and abuse like we do the ocean the same way it's fast there's tons of it why not use it as a toilet so i mean that's that's what we're doing with the ocean but We've done it for so long with the land that now the land's telling us it's so pissed and now we have to fix fix it. And that's why in all the news you're seeing tons of huge brands, large companies, carbon offsets, carbon farming. I mean, everybody's in it. There's investors that are ready, just frothing at the mouth to get into this. And that's the other thing I start telling farmers. Just before you jump in bed with the investor who wants to, you know, give you money, again, back up, take a breath, ask yourself, why does this, why is this investor so interested in me? And why, or all of us in this area, like what's in it for the investor and really think through, do the why on that one. You might not come out at a pretty place, but you have to, you know, these are the things you got to keep asking. Is it something that you need investment for? Is it something you could work with your community on instead? You know, there's there's just again these kind this reframing of everything that we're doing, but it starts with the soil. This whole discussion is pointing so much towards the subject of hemp, and it reminds me that uh, just about a year ago, um, we were up your way. We went to a conference there hosted by your local fiber shed to discuss what was happening with hemp in southeastern Massachusetts because the 2018 farm bill had just removed hemp from the controlled substances uh, list, which meant, which opened up the possibility for hemp farmers everywhere to begin cultivating it 
for for a business profit, hopefully. And the beautiful thing about that is um, hemp has long been known as a restorative fiber. It feeds the earth. It sequesters carbon, all the things we're talking about. So in 2018, when the Farm Bill passed, everybody was so excited and there was this initial surge of energy and everybody was ha- having questions about it. And I remember at that conference, there were so many questions and there were so many questions that the presenters who were there from the state of Massachusetts to tell you what you could and you could not do were kind of felt like they were there more to tell us about what we couldn't do than what we could do. And we were finding the same thing in Maryland, which is why we traveled to you to see if we could hear some different things. So in the meantime, uh, there's a whole year now. Is there anything that's been happening on the hemp front that you can talk about there? So funny you asked that. And um, so as part of this conference, I could take three different workshops. So the second workshop I took that day was called something like, where are we at with hemp in Massachusetts? <laughs> and <laughs> I want you to remember how many people were in that room. Um, yeah. We had that hemp conference and that was, it was, uh, that was actually a CMAP conference. And we were there just to, as part of, you know, we're working with hemp fiber. Most people were there because of CBD. So mm-hmm. Flash, For those you know. listening, there were probably what forty people in that room, fifty. Yeah, there were. Yeah, there were. I don't know, maybe even more than that. Okay. Yeah, okay. there was a lot. Somewhere between fifty and hundred. Yeah. Okay. So, forward, you know, fast forward to Saturday, where I'm in a room with about fifteen people, and the woman who is talking to us actually grows hemp for CBD, and. She's talking about CBD, everything. And I just kind of raised my hand and I said, I, I love that you guys are talking, you know, that you're talking about CBD, but I'm actually here for hemp fiber. Can you just, as you're talking about it, just let me know where, where you're talking about hemp, industrial hemp for Massachusetts as a fiber and when that's for CBD. And she's like, oh, great. And then I heard another woman say, yeah, I'm interested too. And then I turned around and I looked and another woman was nodding her head. So there's three of us in the room we're definitely there to learn more about hemp fiber. And I am just in awe that anybody still wants to grow hemp at all in the state of Massachusetts for the incredible rules and regulations still here upon us. The one thing I did learn is when it is finally really, really okay for people to to grow it, because you can grow it. There's just a lot of rules. I mean, if it's under... 0.3% for the THC level at the top, you know, when you're, when they do the testing on it, if it's under, then you can harvest that hemp to make either CBD, or if you're growing hemp fiber, that CBD for that, then you can harvest it. But if it's over, I think you've got about two chances to remediate the amount of THC. Again, not a farmer, have no idea how you do that. And um, if by the third time, you, you haven't corrected the amount of THC, um, the state of Massachusetts comes and watches as you burn your crop down because you're not allowed to do anything with it except burn it or compost it, which is so ridiculous to me when we think about Roundup and all these other things that we're allowed to do to really ruin the, you know, ruin the planet and ruin our drinking water and, and take out bugs and take out, you know, that we it's not okay if you have over 0.3% on a plant. So that, yeah, tons of rules and regulations. We are no further 
the one thing she did say, though, is we will have the best regulations here in Massachusetts and we will have the cleanest CBD and the cleanest hemp when it when all is said and done. And, and it is really legal to grow it right now. It's just it's not anything in, in, that farmers really want to invest in. It's good if you want to do R&D, do a little, on the small level, like kind of just personal use. You don't want to make it a business. You want to get ahead of the game and just learn how to grow it. And, um, but that's, I feel like the most, the best you can do. I am involved with a group right now in North Carolina and I'm heading down there soon to hopefully, you know, there's, there's already farming North Carolina hemp farming going, going on, but we're meeting with people who can fund it, can farm it, can, you know, can process it. And we're working as a group to create North Carolina hemp and hopefully by the end of the year, have be able to have a really great announcement and launch of it. So it's, I mean, it is happening in other places. It's just, this is a really strict place to be in to consider hemp. That's really exciting that to, to hear about places that are really moving forward on it. It, it is true that in, in, in much of the country that we're so hung up on, on rules and regulations that people are paralyzed with it. it that's certainly the case here in Maryland. Um, but, uh, referring to what you were talking about a, a moment ago about the room being filled with mostly people interested in CBD, it was probably been four years ago that we went to the Northern Colorado hemp conference where people from mostly the region, but people came from all over to, to hear what was going on and hear how the, uh, the legislation was moving forward. This was, of course, well before the farm bill passed. And there were, there were um, probably a couple thousand people there. Maybe that's overestimating. I don't know. But audit, an auditorium full of people hearing these presentations. And um, I remember one, one of the presenters was up there saying, um, how many people here are interested in, in fiber, growing hemp for fiber. And again, this is, this is an auditorium full of probably at least a couple hundred people. And, um, there were two or three of us raised our hand. The rest of everybody's there for CBD and the exhibition hall was one after another, you know, booth after CBD oil, CBD oil, CBD oil. And after a while you think you don't even know how to tell the difference, what you're supposed to choose the best one. And it's all very confusing. So the point being, and this presenter actually said it, there's so much opportunity in the hemp fiber sector, but no one's paying attention to it for some reason. And I mean, that's okay until we get everything worked out. There's more barriers to entry though. It's part of it. Well, processing, we don't have, we don't have the market and the processing. That's the thing that the, nobody knows what the, you know, people can process CBD oil. You can do that in your garage or whatever. But um, as far as the processing of the hemp to fiber, there's this huge missing piece that's, been lost for a century used to be done by hand but it was done it's a legacy of american history to have clothing and our flag um and um military uniforms and what all else made out of hemp and it just it went away so um it's another relearning thing 
course, it needs to be modernized so it can be done on some scale. I don't think we're all going to get very far out beating it in our backyards with a stick. Um, (laughs) I guess it's a start. (laughs) But yeah, there's that piece, the processing piece, which I guess is why no one's interested at this point. Because again, everybody's interested in speed and quick quick profit. And there's there's this statistic going around. I'm not sure where it comes from. Everybody's excited because you can get what I've heard is $60,000 per acre of hemp. Wow. Well, I don't know where that comes from. Well, not right now. Um, and, who, you know, who's going to buy your hemp and what are they going to do with it? There's a lot to figure out in terms of hemp. But um, well, at the same time, it's a great it's such a great opportunity because it's one of those things where, you know, when we think about how much we've how much of our craftsmanship and technology and um american know-how you know we've 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 exported everything that we you know we've known how to do and so we're it's this relearning right now so i i think you know bringing hemp back it's a real opportunity to go from farm to finished product which is what we're doing in north carolina we've been working on i had a great call yesterday with a group of people um who will be offering um, socks and hats and um, anyways to be uh, talked about more on that one but yeah it's you can bring in the infrastructure for how to process because that's that's like the biggest part like and you just said that Mary too it's like the processing itself there's very few people who can do it in the U.S. and who can do it well I'm not quite sure why we're not bringing in people from other countries to reteach us and why we are blindly trying to learn, but, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see, you know, again, learning more about that. And I'm excited to be a part of this, this group talking about hemp in North Carolina next month. And just, it's also super cool that like, even five years ago, it was like, I just feel like there's been so much education as much information as there still is. Um, the fact that people can even talk about it and have phone calls about it. And it's just, it's really cool how fast it has kind of evolved, at least since we've started talking about it too. And what you just said about bringing people in from other countries to teach us the processing, maybe that's a good fiber shed grant idea for well, our, our newly formed Chesapeake fiber shed. I think I'm going to yeah. take that to the group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's um, there's definitely a lot to a lot to learn, and um, and you know there are people who are who who are doing a good job with, you know, growing things like Chico, like Fiber Shed, has it's there's a Chico flax and linen, they're doing some really great work, and the Western Mass Fiber Shed has been uh, growing flax. Um, there's somebody in Nova Scotia Fiber Shed that's growing flax. So there's, you know, similar plants. People are trying to figure it out. But yeah, we don't want to be beating stalks I've been redding out in the field on beds of nails. You know, that's not <laughs> the way we're going to be making clothing unless we're, we're you know, in a shaker village back in the day. <laughs> Which would be nice. Also, um, Amy, can you tell us just a little bit about, I know we're, we're kind of... Um, running up against our time here, but I'd love to hear just a little bit about your recent trip out to California. Um, and you just, and even if it's just kind of a reflection, you don't need, need to give us a play by play necessarily, but any important reflective thoughts you want to share 
Yeah, I mean, we all have to invest in ourselves, and I, I don't like investing in myself in any uh, contained classroom. So I decided to pair a, a trip up out west to to work with botanical colors, and uh, we were teaching a natural dye class to about eighty people. And while there, while they're in San Francisco, why not plan out my dream trip out west? So I got together, you know, got all the people that were kind of my heroes together, like Rebecca Burgess and Jess Daniels and, uh, and Stephanie Wilkes and, um, uh, you know, anyways, a, a bunch of really great women to get around a table, to have a conversation. I had breakfast with people who I deeply admire, dinners and lunches. And once I was done with San Francisco and overwhelmed by how much I was learning and being inspired by, you know, my, my colleagues, then I headed out. What I really wanted to do was start hitting farms, fiber shed farms. And how do you run a farm that's thousands and thousands of acres on the West coast to what we're used to here in my fiber shed, which is five to 10 acres, if we're lucky, uh, you know, what's the difference between the two? How are, how, what's the approach to it? in terms of sequestering carbon or regenerative farming. Um, why some people are, are totally against no-till farming, and, and then there's lots of people who are. You know. So I just kept having conversations with farmers about, the, about those, um, you know, those different topics. And then what was fun was kind of, you know, like Crystal Moody, who is – a wonderful fiber. She, she was with Fibershed for a while. She's a consultant now. She's so smart, but she was able to connect. And, and pa- my friend Pamela Aiello, she worked with the North Face for about, I guess, 13 years as their global marketing director. So the, those two are kind of my Sherpas out there and connected me to different farms. And, you know, we were just out in the woods, out with the cows Um, meeting with land trust folks, eating good food that came from regenerative farmed farm, regenerative farm farms. That sounds weird. Soils from farms. And, um, and then after learning from those guys, I went out and spent two days out on Sally Fox's farm. And what was a real turning point for me was probably at Sally's farm where I actually got the most out of the trip because If anybody knows Sally Fox, she's been around doing what she does, farming this beautiful brown cotton since, I mean, like the 80s, 90s. And and she's had her a really interesting career with it and has evolved into where she is now. But when I went out, like Sally does so much stuff. She teaches. She's she has about 250 merino sheep. She has her wheat that she's growing, Sonoran wheat that she grows. And then it's cotton, sheep, wheat. Yeah. And she kind of, so she's, she's doing all three and very, yeah, very busy and also works selling fabrics with her cotton in it to a lot of Japanese buyers. She makes it on her website. You can see some of the beautiful selvage denims like beautiful fabrics that she has with her cotton in it but when we got there you know sally is 
trying to, you know, there's a fire that's not that far away while we're there. And she's trying to create green spaces for her sheep. So Kathy Hattori, who's the founder of Botanical Colors, and the two of us are staying out there and we're helping her move irrigation systems to create green spaces for these sheep. And just in the course of 24 hours, I said, oh my God, I can't believe that Sally has to do this every single day. And then I started thinking more about farmers everywhere, you know, like the amount of work it takes to run a farm. And you two know exactly how to, you know, you run your own, your own farm. You've got your, you've got a lot going on as well as running your lady farmer business. But at the end of the day, when I'm sleeping in this little shack with 250 Merino outside my window and I'm covered in their sheep pelts for warmth, just like being really grateful that there are people like Sally Fox who are out there doing what they're doing, even though it's really hard. They're just, this is what they know. This is what they do. And they're really trying to recreate it for, you know, 2020 and beyond and and getting people engaged. It's, it's a battle. And so having, you know, having been part of that and again, talking with a lot of farmers, seeing farmers who have smaller farms and how they were able to create, um, sustainable, a sustainable, uh, job, you know, a business for themselves with that versus having something that's maybe too big made me realize that there's really great potential for our farmers here on the East coast to really utilize those five to 10 acres and use it for a number of ways, you know, in a number of ways, just for their own animals, but also for education to grow better food for people. I mean, there's a whole system that they can be creating to really showcase how regenerative farming can be done and teach this next generation about how to do it. Cause there's lots of, I mean, bring in the sheep, bring in the kids. I mean, come on, kids love them. <laughs> we I've never hugged so many sheep in my life as I did when I was out West. But yeah, by the time I was on the plane heading home, hating the fact that I was on a plane in the first place with, you know, just the, the carbon impact, the impact of, of that, as I'm reading Wendell Berry letters to a young farmer, I was like, well, I'm sorry, no, he didn't write letters to a young farmer, farmer, but he has a really great letter in letters to a young farmer that um, talks about how we can really use farmers now. And one of the, I, I have to go back to see exactly who it was in letters to a young farmer who wrote this, but it was interesting because they said, is each letter is really a letter to a young farmer. And this one letter was saying that they were so sorry they hadn't listened to the younger farmers 10 years ago who were coming up with these crazy ideas that all, you know, that they should, they thought it was just some young person's idea that that's not how farming goes and how young farmers are so necessary now to change this world around from the political landscape to the, you know, the very soil that we all walk on. There's so many opportunities to really weave us all together as a nation by, by really working with our farmers. I, I predict that the farmers will be the most go-to, where they've been the lowest paid in history for so long. I see them as our saviors in all this that I hope get paid the most money looking forward because without food we can't exist and the farmers are the ones these that that know how to grow food so 
come on. I mean, <laughs> we're dancing again. Yeah. We're doing yeah. Hands emojis yeah. Again. And, and you've heard that expression, I'm sure, and we don't have to include this, but but you need your, your doctor, your dentist, maybe once or twice a year, but you need your farmer three times a day. Right. <laughs> yeah. That needs to be more inculcated in the common yeah. mindset. But anyway, sure. okay. One more. Emma has one Preach more it, question Amy. for you, I think. Oh yeah. Okay. We're running Amy. out of time. We're out of time. Um, what is the, what is it most, wait, what is it that you most want people to understand about the work that you do? Hmm. Um, I guess I don't need anybody to understand the work that I do necessarily as much as the work that they need to do. But if I can shine a light on the work that they need to do, then I've done my job. How about that? Yeah, girl. So awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, we are, we're all, we're all learning as we are living and if you're not learning something new every day, and if you think you know everything, then I don't have much time actually to talk with you because you're not my not my people. But if the the smart people are the ones who are learning all the time, and as again as an amateur coming into this world of fiber shed and farming, and I, I'm just learning so much. If and if I can put some kind of a light on what it means to to take care of your animals better or to grow better food or how to create a community, then I'm doing my job as part of this fiber shed project that, that I'm, that I'm part of, but this is just something I don't want to be the only one teaching. I want to be learning as well. And so I I just look forward to learning from people as, as I'm going. So, you know, shine the I'll shine the spotlight on you you shine it on me we all are working together and making this you know making the world a better place I know it sounds hippy trippy but that's just where where we're at there's just this time where we have to we have to just start listening and stop talking so much and for those in in the audience that um which are most most of us or them um that are not farmers making the choices the consumer choices that support these goals of of getting back to our source and rejuvenating and reviving the health of our soil and our environment and everything and that is you know, your clothes and your food and everything you use in your your daily life we have a choice of every single one of those things that we um, acquire, buy, borrow, whatever. Um, and it's that, that level of thoughtfulness and consciousness and intentionality that's going to create the change that we need to see. Thanks so much for joining us today, Amy. I think we, we've certainly learned a lot as we always do when we talk to you and can't wait to see you again soon. Thank you guys. And keep doing the good work that you're doing. Thank you. The good work on the good dirt.
we hope you enjoyed this wonderful conversation today. I think Amy has a real gift for pulling together lots of ideas and presenting them in a way so that many people can hear. I love the story about watching the indigo bat and taking it from an experience of waiting to a meditation. Not only is she teaching others the sustainable skill of natural dying here, but she's also demonstrating a bit of a slow living mindset in the process, something that we all can apply every day. Yeah, and I just love Amy and listening to her talk and tell stories. She's so full of knowledge and so relatable, and I just love following her on all of her journeys and projects. Um, Speaking of, you can too. I find um, the Southeastern New England Fiber Shed handle on Instagram is super active. It's at S-E New England Fiber Shed is the handle. Or on Facebook, it's just the Southeastern New England Fiber Shed. She's always posting great articles and updates on all of their work there. And her personal Instagram is Amy Tropolis. She posts some great stuff there too. We hope you continue to tune in every couple of weeks to the Good Dirt podcast. Coming up, we have some great interviews around slow food and slow spaces um, and many more to come. You won't want to miss those. Please share, rate, review, and find us at We Are Lady Farmer on Instagram, on Facebook, or online at www.ladyfarmer.com. Go there and sign up for our mailing list. If you have any feedback or you want to suggest a guest, you can reach us directly at thegooddirtpodcast at gmail.com. And we hope you have a great rest of your day. you like listening to the good dirt i hope you do because you're here listening to it and are you looking for more good dirt in your life and a community of slow living enthusiasts to connect with all while supporting your favorite sustainable living podcast well we're so excited to offer the almanac it's our private slow living community network where we share workshops activities articles essays recipes and so much more that align with our community's sustainable slow seasonal way of living as a member you'll have access to information sharing and discussions on numerous topics of interest through online threads and frequent live virtual gatherings Members receive access to a virtual community of hundreds of other slow-living enthusiasts, as well as Almanac-exclusive events, workshops, recipes, playlists, online gatherings, and a book club. We offer seasonal activities and ongoing discussions on a variety of topics to guide you on your slow-living journey. Also included is 10% off the Lady Farmer Marketplace year-round, numerous resources and more, and discounted Lady Farmer events, including... A slow living retreat. As a Good Dirt listener, we are excited to offer you 20% off your monthly membership and three months free, which is basically an entire season, if you sign up for the year. So go ahead and go to ladyfarmer.com slash community to sign up with this special offer just for Good Dirt listeners. Yay! That's ladyfarmer.com slash community 
to sign up for 20% off a monthly membership of the Almanac or three months free if you sign up for an entire year. That's ladyfarmer.com community. <laughs>